You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Massimo Piliucci, it's good to see you. Good to see you, my friend. What's up? Uh, what's up? What is an up, right? Um, nearing the end of the semester. Yeah. I've got so much grading to do, I'm like can drown in it. Um, um, you seem to be uh, growing a beard. Uh, yes, that's true. You know, uh, as Epictetus said, every philosopher should have a beard. Of course, that's problematic these, day, these days because there is a lot of, you know, uh, variety of philosophers, some of whom cannot grow a beard. But, that's uh, right. That's right. Well, worst comes to worst, you can become a rabbi. Um, <laughs> good point. <laughs> um, so uh, I want to welcome everybody uh, in the Sophia audience, uh, Blogging Heads TV, Meaning of Life TV. Uh, I am, of course, Daniel Kaufman, professor of philosophy at Missouri State. And uh, this is my partner in crime, Massimo Piliucci, who is the K.D. Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of the City University of New York, also author of How to Be a Stoic, which is an international bestseller, am I right? Or international smash, at least? It's, it's, it's an international bestseller. I think you can say that. Yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. I can actually say that. You can actually say that. <laughs> That's freaking awesome. Okay. Um, Surprising, but yes, awesome. <laughs> So today we are going to talk uh, about issues that arise in the philosophy of action. And um, it, what we're going to talk about is related to uh, something that came up in our discussion of Wilfred Sellers. Right. Um, but we're going to sort of focus in on this one element as opposed to it being simply an element in a larger discussion. Because this is something that really um, lately has been preoccupying me quite a lot. Um, and, and so I want to sort of, I mean, I have sort of ideas about this. I wrote an essay on it that I know you've read and, and have thoughts on, but I, I do really still want to do this the, the way we always do. And that is with me asking you for your views on it. And then my views can come out in the discussion. Sounds um, good. So just to sort of, for the audience's sake, just to give a general, um, what we're going to be talking about is the question of actions and to what extent, um, actions are something that we can come to understand uh, through the natural sciences. Um, and in this case, it's going to be mostly uh, uh, biology um, um, and its various extensions in neuroscience. Um, or whether we should think of actions uh, in, in a, as a fundamentally different sort of thing, uh, as not particularly amenable to scientific uh, investigation. And um, so I, I sort of want to start out by asking you, both as a philosopher and a biologist, um, what do you, how do you even think of, of what an, an action, as opposed to, say, a set of, of motor movements? So, you know, I can do this, and I can describe this as a series of motor movements, but I can also say that I'm asking a question if I'm sitting in a classroom. Right. Now, let's say asking a question is an action. Right. How do you understand the relationship between the action on the one hand and the actual uh, physical uh, motor movement uh, on the other. How do you like to think of this? Yeah, I, I'm actually surprised that, um, as you point out in your in your article, which I'm assuming is going to be linked uh, from from this episode, I'm kind of surprised that, as you point out correctly, the trend, the very clear trend in analytic philosophy, has been to uh, to go toward naturalistic explanations of, of human actions uh, or or more strongly toward a reduction of explanations of human actions to, uh, you know, biology, physics, and so on and so forth, where basically reasons become causes in the, in the natural science 
term, uh, you know, meaning of the term, because that doesn't make any sense to me uh, as a biologist. Uh, so let's take your example, right? So if I raise your my hand, that's clearly an action. That's a, that's described as as a, as, a, an, as an action. That's easily described as an action. It can be obviously it has a physical and biological component because I can give you a whole description of what's going on inside my muscles, inside my brain to cause that action, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? The raising of my hand. That tells me absolutely nothing about why I raise my hand. Did I raise it because I want to go to the bathroom? Did I raise it because I want to ask a question? Did I raise it because you know whatever? other cultural context or, or, or uh, is you, you may think of. So it seems to me that the biology and the physics completely underdetermine the reasons for my actions. Um, and that to me means that there is something missing in the description, in the natural biological you know, physical description of that action. So what, what, do you think is missing? what do you think is missing? Well, it's, it, what it's missing is I would think uh, that what is obvious, which is biology gives me no access and physics even less to what my reasons for raising my hand are. And reasons, of course, are the result of, uh, you know, voluntary uh, reflection, reflection on certain, on certain, you know, on, on what's going on. You know, like in my environment right now, somebody said something and, you know, let's say we're in a seminar and therefore I think about what he said, what the speaker said, and I want to raise my, raise my, my, my hand in order to ask a question. There's nothing in biology that actually tells me that that is the case, as opposed to, again, the same exact physical and biological situation in which, however, I'm raising my hand simply because I want to go to a bathroom. So, um, so what it's missing there is an analysis at the level of human reasons. Now, it's true, of course, as much modern psychology tells us and much modern cognitive science tells us that I could be wrong in fact about my own reasons, right? I mean, I'm not, I don't say, I'm not saying that I have completely transparent sort of Cartesian access to my own motivations and reasons. I could be mistaken about why I'm raising my hand. So I am not making sort of the naive argument that, um, because it's my actions and my reason that I'm perfectly uh, aware of what's going on and I know exactly what I'm doing. I may not. Uh, there is there's very good evidence that shows that under certain conditions we actually don't. We're not aware of our our reasons. But still, there are reasons why we're doing things. Right. When, when people typically are, you know, make the point about that we're not always correct about our reasons or even clear about what they are, the point is not that there aren't any reasons. It's merely that the reasons are either subconscious or unconscious or... Um, 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 or that one is in some way self-deluded, self-deluded, et cetera. But there still are reasons. Exactly. There are still reasons. You know, maybe I'm, I'm raising my hand, uh, signaling that I want to go to the bathroom, but in fact, I'm so damn bored with the speaker that I want an excuse and I don't even realize it that that is the case. Or perhaps I'm raising my hand to ask a question, but in fact, I really dislike the speaker deep down, and I want to embarrass him. I don't want to ask the question for asking the question. I want to embarrass him. And I, I may not genuinely be aware that that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, as you say, it counts as reasons. You've just described the Q&A at pretty much every philosophy conference, right? That makes sense. <laughs> that was not by chance. <laughs> uh, okay, so, so let's, I, I, we'll get to the sub- subject of reasons in a minute. Um, 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 because I think that there is a sort of a rabbit hole here that, that most, that a lot of people run down. Um, but I sort of just want to be clear. So is it your view that, um, actions are a sort of class of, of, I don't want to, let's, are a class 
that always involve reasons, that one always acts for a reason, and that at least that's one thing that will dis- one way in which to distinguish an action from a mere motor movement is that an action is done for a reason. Right. And a mere motor yeah. movement is done because of various efficient causes that occur at the physical and, and neurological right. levels. Right. I mean, at least they, uh, if we're talking about voluntary actions, right? So, so when I um, try to make my, my point in a different context to, to my students is I, I, I bring up this idea of either I'm raising my, my arm or somebody's forcefully raising my arm, right? If somebody's forcefully raising my arm, that's not a voluntary action on my part. And the explanation has to do with the physics of leverage on the one hand and his motivations for raising my arm. But if I'm raising my arm, then it's I actually I obviously have reasons to do so. Now, true, those reasons are implemented by way of biological effects, because I have to, you know, my brain has to send the signals to my muscles, and my muscles have to react accordingly, and that's how my my arm gets raised. So it's not that the biology is irrelevant uh, to it. Biology has to be part of it because otherwise I could have all the reasons that I want, but if I cannot implement them, I mean, I'm a biological organism, right? My my consciousness, my reasoning, and so on and so forth are embodied. I'm not a, presumably, I, as far as I'm aware, I'm not a brain in the bat. Right. Therefore, you know, those reasons require, the full understanding of the action does require I think the biology, and if you want to go all the way down to the physics, sure, you can say, well, that happens because the biology happens because the physics is in a certain way. But neither the biology nor the physics actually tell you why I'm raising my hand in that particular moment and in that particular situation. Well, and this is the part that I think is tricky and, and sort of needs to be teased apart because um, – and that's going to depend on how we understand what a reason is um, and the relationship between a reason and a cause or the lack thereof, which I want to get to. Um, but I'm wondering if, if we're going to have some trouble with the idea of an involuntary action. Um, um, and so in, in other words, I guess I would ask you, okay, what distinguishes an involuntary action from a mere motor movement? Um, so that, there, I think that's a good question. Uh, and I was going to ask you after follow up: Can do animals act? Right. So, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I think it's a continuum, frankly. Uh, that I don't think that there is a necessarily a sharp distinction there. For instance, uh, m- right now my heart is beating, and if you want to uh, consider, if you want to cons- construe the the beating of my heart as an action because it's causing stuff and it's causing you know circulation and all that sort of stuff, then it's clearly an unconscious action. I don't control it. I have nothing to do with it. My nervous system does because without my nervous system, you know, the peripheral nervous system, the heart wouldn't be beating. So if that's an action or if I'm breathing, let's say, you know, breathing, it's an even better example because it's, it's a partially voluntary and partially involuntary action. I don't pay attention to my breathing, right? It's an involuntary, it's normally an involuntary action, but I can override it within certain limits uh, with my, my will. So that's actually a very good example of a, a, class of actions that kind of in between. On the one hand, and one extreme, you have completely involuntary ones, such as most of our physiological functions. At the opposite end, we have the completely voluntary ones, such as my, me raising the, my hand in order to ask a question in a seminar. And then in the middle, there's stuff in between where some actions are normally involuntary, but actually I can override or modify them 
you know, I can either stop breathing for a little bit or, or breathing more, uh, you know, more heavily, more consciously, like when I meditate, for instance, uh, yeah. I pay more attention and control my breathing, right? Yeah. So now in terms of animals, uh, that's an interesting question, which I, I tend to be agnostic about because it depends on what animal we're talking about and what level of conscious, deliberate action that animal uh, is is engaging in. So I would say that for a larger number of animals, like insects, let's say, uh, there probably is no no question of a voluntary action. It's, it's all it's all automatic mechanism. It's all biology. There, I don't think ants think about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Now, would I make that claim for a chimpanzee? Uh, no, I'm not so sure. It's very possible that chimpanzees have inner mental lives that are certainly not as sophisticated as human ones, but but they they may be there. And then yeah. where do you draw the line? Well, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, it's a continuum, and I wouldn't know where to draw the line. The point is that there is an extreme on one, on one hand where uh, uh, animals or, or, say, plants actions, because plants act as well, right, in a sense. I mean, a, a plant that whose leaves follow the sun throughout the day, that's a, that's that could be described as an action. But it's an action that is clearly, to me, entirely non-voluntary. It has nothing to do with reasons uh, and, and motivations. It's got to do, it's entirely described by the biological system that the plant uses. Yeah. yeah. See, I, I worry that by having action, the concept of an action sort of encompass both the sorts of things that we do for reasons and the thing and things that we don't do for reasons, but are, as you say, involuntary. I worry that we're going to have trouble then, um, making what seem to me to be a number of sort of crucial distinctions. Um, um, and also to sort of blur, um, the, the lines between what in the other discussion we talked about at great length, the manifest and the scientific images, like to me, Actions and reasons clearly belong to the manifest image for reasons that I'll explain, uh, that I explain in the essay that we'll talk about uh, probably in a little bit. Um, and, and, uh, motor movements, uh, which, which are just simply a species of event, um, seem to me to go with causes and to clearly belong in the scientific image. And, and, and I guess that I worry that parsing it the way you do is going to make it very hard for us to make certain distinctions. Things are going to bleed together. And it's going to be hard to distinguish actions from events, right? I see. I see your problem. Um, I'm not so sure that, I, that I'm as concerned about it because so long as one starts using modifiers, yeah, I mean, like voluntary actions uh, as opposed to involuntary actions, I think we are good. Just because there are, as you know, in, in, in philosophy, just because there are intermediate situations, that doesn't mean that there are no clear, distinct cases. Uh, that we can talk about without a problem, and 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 if we want to make progress, I think we should we should focus perhaps on the on the clear and distinct cases, the ones that that are very obviously uh, not causes in the natural sense. I mean, after all, human beings are biological organisms that evolved over a period of time. So, in there, I do follow Darwin, uh, where he assumes that there is no sharp break anywhere in the biological world, including uh, when it comes to voluntary actions by human beings. It's possible that chimpanzees engage in voluntary actions, in which case you can simply apply the manifest image analysis of uh, of the situation to chimpanzees. Do we have to do it right now? No, because it's not relevant to our discussion and we don't even know really to what, to the, to what extent chimpanzees uh, actually engage in voluntary actions. So, yeah, I, I see your 
problem. It, it would be nice to have a sharp distinction, but I don't think that the sharp distinction, the, the lack of a sharp distinction there actually undermines necessarily uh, the, the question. And maybe at this point we should remind our listeners to, you know, our viewers what, the, what, what is it we're talking about in terms of manifest image and scientific image yeah, and all I mean, that. Yeah, we did a whole dialogue on it, so I didn't, I didn't want to sort of dredge it up too much, but I mean, um, that the distinction comes from Willard's, Wilfred Sellers' uh, sort of landmark paper uh, called um, um, uh, Philosophy and the Scientific Image of Man. And um, um, there Sellers distinguishes between sort of, we could call, let's say, two frames of reference from which we look at the, through which we look at the world. One is the scientific image, as he calls it, and that's the world that's, that's presented to us uh, through natural science. And then there's the manifest image, which is the world, um, and this is harder to summarize in a pithy formula, but it's sort of, it's sort of the world um, as, as it is including people and, and, and what, 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 what Sellers calls the space of reasons. Calling people their, their, their reasons the thing, and the things they create by virtue of those reasons, which are most are social and political and moral institutions, sort of way, forms of life. And right. he thinks that um, that that the two are very different, um, and that one cannot be reduced to the other, and that really, in order to have a total picture of the world, because the world does include people and the things that they make, uh, that you have to kind of take a stereoscopic vision and look at the world through both lenses, sort of superimposed on each other. Yes, um, that's the distinction we're talking about. Right. And- that's precisely why I think the existence of Intermediate cases doesn't really create a problem for that vision. So as you know, we discussed in the other dialogue, but let's go back to it for just a second. Um, as you know, after Sellers had a number of influential uh, students, uh, and, and they went in kind of two different directions, right? The so-called right-wing Salesians, like uh, the, the Churchlands, for instance, um, decided to go eliminativist. They decided that basically the the manifest image should be reduced ideally to the scientific image that that what we think of as reasons prescriptions and things like that are just illusions in a sense right um and then the left-wing salarians uh such as rory for instance uh went kind of the opposite way and argued for a very strong demarcation between the two the two images and the two have pretty much nothing or little to do with each other i think the so I tend to be, to my own surprise, I tend to be more sympathetic to Rory than the Churchlands. And I say to my own surprise because, of course, I come as, to this as a biologist and as a philosopher of science. So it's like you would think that yeah. I would be naturally in, inclined to go the, the eliminatorist way, not the, not the other way. But I do think that Rory and, uh, and some of the left-wing Solarians do go a little too far and, in fact, betray that notion that I think is really powerful that you just explained of the stereoscopic vision. The stereoscopic vision means that if you really want to understand, let's say, a, a, a human being, right, what it means to be human, you need both. You cannot transcend from the fact that human beings are physical beings that evolved, uh, you know, they're biological things and so on and so forth, because a lot of our desires and a lot of inclinations and behaviors and so on and so forth, I, in fact, do find an explanation in physics and biology. The reason I cannot fly out of the window without smashing myself on the ground, it's because of physics, uh, and biology, because I didn't, we didn't evolve wings. Uh, the reason I tend to have certain propensities for eating certain foods uh, or, or seeking certain other kinds of pleasures is, is because of the biology. 
But those things do not explain even remotely the full of the human experience. You do need reasons, motivations, prescriptions, values, and all that sort of stuff, which are simply not coming out either of the physics, not of the biology. They're not, they're not there. That's why I find these, this idea, this notion of the telescopic vision very, very powerful. Particularly, and, and of course, as you know, it applies to human beings and maybe, as we were saying earlier, to some other animals with complex behaviors. But for most of the rest of the world, we don't need that manifest image. Uh, there is, you know, the scientific image is perfectly fine when it comes to physics, all of physics. Yeah. It's perfectly fine when it comes to most of biology. I don't need any, any manifest image when it comes to plants. Well, uh, except, except for, and I mean, I, I actually, uh, to prepare for this discussion, I actually rewatched our manif- our cellars. I actually used it in my class. Um, uh-huh. I'm teaching philosophy of mind right now. And yeah. um, we're doing the last unit is on uh, psychological explanation and whether it should be considered a species of scientific explanation. And so we read the church lens, we read Fodor, and then we read Sellers at the end. Right. And so I had the students watch our dialogue on Sellers, so I watched it again. And as we did point out, though, I mean, there is one sense in which we do always need the manifest image, and that is that we, we always interpret what we discover in science Yes. In terms of the manifest image, right? Which is why we employ so many metaphors when we talk, when we talk about the results of science. As you said in the dialogue, if we didn't do that, then science would simply consist of st- statistics, right? Yeah. We, we, we wouldn't be telling a story, so to speak. Right. And as you know, that, that's, that's absolutely correct. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why I tend to disagree with some of our colleagues, like, let's say, Alex Rosenberg uh, of Duke University. Who yeah. Who's think- in the of this, like Churchland? I mean, yes, yeah. and Alex has recently written a couple of, uh, of articles, uh, actually he's been interviewed, um, and maybe we should, we should link to that as well, uh, recently, and then he's written a short article because he has published a new book about history uh, at, where he says that we should do away with, with narratives, that, that we are fooled in, in thinking that we understand motivations of that led to historical events, when in fact it's all, you know, that's all an, uh, a, a sort of construct, imaginary construct of, of, of uh, our tendency to build narratives. It's all an illusion, and we should yeah. really look at the facts, you know, the physical facts. Yeah. I looked at that and I said, what the hell? That makes no That takes everything that is interesting and relevant about history out of the picture. Well, it denies the existence of the space of reasons, as 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 Sellers describes it, and that's the space in which I I would argue ninety percent of what really matters to us takes place, and so and so maybe we should talk um start talk talk now about move to the question of reasons and causes, um because yeah, before we do that, sorry, yeah, go uh, ahead, go ahead, I yeah. mentioned Alex for a, for for a reason. Uh, my objection to him is not only. To his take is not only that you know if you do that you take out ninety percent as you said of what's interesting about history or about any kind of human relations. He seems also to underestimate or to not understand uh, or to somehow deny that science itself falls into that kind of category. Scientific theories are stories; they are narratives. Right. They're not out there. I mean, we we tend to believe, that especially scientists, tend to 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 uh, talk as if scientific theories were sort of out there. You know, the true. Uh, theory of, you know, fundamental theory of physics. Scientific theories are not out there. They are in here. They're, they're human constructions. They're ways in which we make sense of what, what we perceive of the world out there. There's a very good friend of mine who's a physicist, Jim Baggett, is just about to come out with a new book on quantum mechanics uh, and, and sort of weird physics. And he makes this point very clearly. He gives a lot of credits to 
philosophers, he says, you know, a lot of physicists don't understand that they take a lot of metaphysics on board right. without any examination and that they couldn't possibly be doing right. physics if they were not, in fact, using metaphors and, 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 you know, and had reasons and so on and so forth. This is not out there. It's, it's in here. It's in the human mind. Yeah. No, and the point, and the point is well taken. I mean, you said, I thought this was very, um, um, striking because of its illustrative quality. Um, you said, look, you know, if, 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 if we did, if science ultimately wasn't about telling a story, it was just about prediction. Um, um, uh, for example, if a computer was doing science, it would simply be doing mathematics, right? Yes, exactly. Um, um, that the whole, the whole point of our doing it. Yeah. is not just to yield predictions, but to render it intelligible in a way. And I want to argue that rendering something intelligible, what that means is have, making it such that it fits into a story, into a yes. narrative. Um, that's, that's, I think that's it's fundamentally narrational. Yes. Um, that is why the, interesting, the, the example of quantum mechanics is interesting, because there is a school of people uh, physicists who, who refer to themselves more or less jokingly as the shut up and calculate. They, they don't uh, want to interpret. The they answer. don't want to interpret, right. Yeah. Uh, they want to say, look, the, the, the quantum mechanics can be written down as a set of equations. You just plug in the numbers and you get predictions about experimental outcomes. And that's it. That's the end of the story. And the reason they tend to be a minority within physics is because physicists don't want just that. They don't want to act as computers they want and to understand but understanding is a human construct it's irreducibly a human construct it's not a question of objective anything out there it's it's again all in your mind aristotle art says that that's the fundamental human imperative yes that's right um, um um and and his conception of a human imperative of course is is thick i mean his conception of biology is thick so it's going to include what we what we're calling the narrational um, right. um and um no i think that's really interesting and very important and um the this one thing about these people who don't want to interpret quantum mechanics do they have a more general philosophy of science in other words is it their view that no sciences should be the results should be interpreted are they arguing for a completely statistical uh approach to science i don't think they most of these people actually think in philosophical terms and so no i don't i, I think the answer would be no but they would feel more comfortable with an instrumentalist philosophy of science, right? With a philosophy of science that tells you, look, we're not in the science is not in the business of finding out the true nature of the world. Uh, it's because that's inaccessible. It's 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 simply in the business of making predictions that work out. Right. But of course, if you, even if you want to go that way, it turns out that actually lots of science gets left out because, for instance, uh, in biology, very rarely you actually make predictions. Uh, because biological systems are too damn complicated to make predictions. What you make a lot of the times is what, that, what people call postdictions. That is, uh, you, you interpret, you understand uh, certain things uh, a posteriori, after you find out uh, about the facts. Well, a postdiction is just a story. Uh, it, yeah. It's a story that makes sense for us of a, of a particular yeah. situation, but it's certainly not a prediction. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, um, actually, just one last thing. Do you know if Alex is in favor of of moving to an uninterpretive picture of science that Alex thinks that the, that science should just simply be statistical? That is a good question. I haven't talked to him about that, and I haven't seen anything that he's written at least recently about it, but I would think that that would be the logical thing. That it, I'm just it, wondering if he accepts the implications of his own view or whether he... Um, 
yeah, sort of, you know, um, inconsistent about it. Okay, so let's talk about reasons. Because I think, and I think that what I'm hoping is that as we add these pieces, the whole picture will sort of emerge. And I'm not still yet sure whether we have a fundamental disagreement or not. Um, um, I agree with you, by the way, that you can't draw a line in the biology. And I like the way that you sort of see the biology as a sort of an intermediary stage between the purely physical and the social. I guess that what I think is that within the biology, once there's the development of language, language in a sense facilitates the creation of a kind of space that is in itself irreducible, right, to the biology, right? In other words, it sort of, it winds up, it winds up sitting at a certain place. Um, and I, and I think that a lot of what matters the most to us in our lives exists in that space. Yeah. Um, um, and that's why I tend to be somewhat also tend to lean towards sort of ontological pluralism because I think that things in that space are real. Um, um, things like social institutions and like, and I don't see any way to give a, any sort of reductionist treatment of them. And I haven't been very satisfied with, with, uh, supervenience accounts. And so, um, I think that maybe, maybe it's not so much that we have a fundamental disagreement, but that I want a more, um, uh, uh, isolate or focus on this space, the space of language, or what I take sellers to space of reasons to be, yeah. and to say that it's do, it does an awful lot of work yeah. um, that doesn't take any input from the sciences underneath it, right? Yeah. Well, so let's talk about for a minute about this um, this notion of sort of ontological pluralism, yeah. which become more and more sympathetic to, as you know, because we talked about this in the past in a couple of other episodes. Um, in your article, you mentioned Quine as sort of the, the epitome of, of the naturalistic tendency, of course, in, um, in philosophy, in modern analytic philosophy. You know, the kind of, you know, you famously said that epistemology, uh, and logic even should be reduced to the natural sciences, you it know. Is that there's branches of psychology, is what he thinks. Right. Yeah. But if you actually go back, so, so a couple of years ago, uh, you may remember I put out on my, on my blog, Footnotes to Plato, a whole series of like 20 something, um, essays on the nature of philosophy and philosophical progress. Yeah, we, and we did, did three dialogues on it. We did a video about it. <laughs> and so one of the things for that series, one of the things, uh, that, that I had to do was to actually go back and reread, uh, Quine and at different points in his career. And it turns out that if you actually look carefully, even Quine was not an ontological monist. It, it yeah. did talk about a desert ontology, right? He said, um, the, our ontology should be as sparse as it possible, as possible. And I agree on that one. I mean, you don't want to go multiply ontologies for yeah, the hell of it. Occam's razor. Yeah. I mean, right, exactly. that's just a reasonable application of Occam, Occam's razor. But even he had trouble with, let's say, mathematical objects. Yeah. Uh, and because, for instance, it was, it was, uh, and I'm not going Platonist here. Uh, I don't think that I'm not, I'm not a Platonist, but I do think that mathematical ob- objects have an ontology that is not reducible to the sort of the, the physical, you know, they're not made of stuff. Yeah. Uh, story. I mean, you yeah. know, the criterion yeah. for numbers are not made of stuff. Um, and just because they are thought by, by way of, of, of stuff, meaning st- st- things in my brain, that doesn't mean that they are the same thing as things in my brain. So, um, you know, there is a long tradition in philosophy, actually, even in, in, among very materialist philosophers. As you know, I have a, a particular preference for the Stoics, and the Stoics were definitely materialists. But even they agreed that there is such a thing as theoretical, you know, abstract concept. They call them abstracta, uh, yeah. in fact. And, and um, 
so I think that even Quine and, and very materialist philosophers such as the Stoics would agree when pushed that no, ontology cannot be monistic. Yeah. No, only people like Rosenberg would actually go all the way, or the or the church lines go all the way and and uh, and uh, and get themselves really in a situation that it's pretty difficult to defend because then you can say, well, and how do you account for these kind of things? Now, you mentioned biology, so and language. So I do think that biology first and then cultural evolution next are game changers in this particular sense. So I believe in some level of emergent properties, some notion of emergent properties. I am not sure that there's such a thing as a strong emergence uh, versus weak emergence. I don't even want to go there. What I do know is that biology change is a game changer with respect to physics. Uh, you can give a completely physical description of biological systems, and that gets you nothing about natural selection. It gets you nothing about survival reproduction. Because, uh, they're, te- because they're teleonomic. Because they're teleonomic. That's, That's, right. Right. That's right. So biological systems, however they arose initially, and however you want to describe them, they are teleonomic, teleonomic systems. And there's no teleonomy, as we discussed in the past, in physics. If there's no teleonomy, which means you know, the appearance of a, of a goal-oriented thing. Um, process. So teleonomy is the appearance of a goal-oriented process. If there's no such thing as physics, in physics, atoms don't, you know, electrons and so on and so forth, planets, galaxies don't, ex- don't, don't uh, exhibit any kind of teleonomic behavior, biological systems do. To me, that's enough to say that there is an emergent property of biological systems. Again, I don't care how you cash it out metaphysically. It doesn't really matter for the purposes we're talking about. Then within biological systems, at some point, you have the evolution of language, which is tightly connected to the evolution of uh, conscious thinking and, you know, deliberate reflections and so on and so forth. Again, there, it doesn't really matter which one came first. Is it possible to have, you know, deliberate thoughts without language or language is required? Who cares? I mean, it's an interesting question. I do care. But it's irrelevant to the discussion we're having, I think. What it is, is that once we have language, now we have teleology. Now we have motivations and purposes and things like that. I was right? just going to ask you, do you think that teleology is what you get when you add language to teleonomy? Yes, that's right. If that's I had to work out an equation, I would say teleonomy plus language gets you deliber- deliberation, it gets motivations, it gets you reasons. Right. That's really, that's amazing. Um, um, and uh, gosh, if that can be cashed out in a way that's sort of, in a sort of rigorous way, I think that's, that really would... It's almost like a solution to what just seems to be something that now people have been banging their heads on now for decades, right? Think yeah. about the problem of intentionality, right? That, right? The problem, all these, these things that people are trying to figure out. Well, how can this be, how can this physical substance have this property, right? And then you get all these, the only one thing I worry about though is that emergence is going to wind up being like supervenience. It's going to wind up being this kind of hand, hand wavy, it's doing all the work, but nobody ever explains really what it means, right? Um, yeah. that, that's why I wonder if it's possible to avoid the metaphysics of emergence because otherwise it winds up being like supervenience. It seems kind of like a black box explanation or something, right? I mean... Um, well, supervenience is one way in which people cash out the concept of, of emergence, right? They, they say, so that's weak emergence. That's, like, like, that's essentially saying that, yeah, yeah, there are, there are new things that happen when systems become complex or interact in a certain way, but that really is, in principle, reducible to the individual parts at the bottom of the system. Uh, maybe, maybe not. I mean, it's funny to me that a lot of people 
make that statement as if the way, if it were, uh, uh, you know, obviously, you know, self-evidently true. I, I don't think it is. Um, there is reasonable disagreement there. But I think you're right. We should probably stay away from the, from the very notion of emergence because it is fraught in, 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 in philosophy and it's, it gets you into all sorts of rabbit holes from which it's, it's hard to get out and actually get anything accomplished. I think, however, we can all agree that whatever the metaphysical basis, uh, biological systems introduce teleonomy. It's not, not found in physics. And uh, language introduced teleology, which is not found in other uh, in most other biological systems, and certainly it's not found in, in physics. And as far as I'm concerned, that's all you need in order to recover uh, a meaningful distinction between the manifest image and the and the and the scientific image. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, and I also I agree with you to a certain extent on the on the the lack of need for metaphysics as well. And and I mean, I, I, what my inclinations lately has been to give a purely what I call a defensive metaphysics, right? And other words, say the following. So look, the reason why people get all worked up about monism and pluralism ontologically is because they think that the pluralism is going to make force them to accept sort of spooky entities. Right. And that's, in my view, simply a, a result of a very basic mistake. Um, the fact that something is not material does not mean it's immaterial, right? Um, 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 and, 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 and so the fact that, you know, uh, the fact that a law or a country is not a material object does not mean it's not a it does not mean it's a spiritual object or does not mean it's a supernatural object and does and so um moreover yeah. i don't think it means even that it is mind independent no i don't think so either no i don't think so i mentioned platonism before i mean when when uh, when quine had trouble with mathematical objects, he didn't have to go Platonist. In fact, he didn't go Platonist. But it, it, you don't have to go Platonist about it and say, "Oh, so these things are out there." No, they're not out there. They are a, they are generated by the human mind. Why? Well, because how do you make sense of that? Well, because the human mind is a game changer yeah. uh, in biological evolution. Now, there may be other minds out there. Uh, you know, there could be a Martian mind, a Jupiterian mind, or whatever it is, and they may be doing something similar. But as far as we're concerned, the human mind is the only game changer of that sort. Uh, in the universe, uh, you yeah. know, known to us in the universe, and no, it doesn't mean. So you, we make up those constructs. These are these are constructs that come out of our own desires and and thinking and so on and so forth. So that yeah. doesn't have to be yeah. spiritual, and it doesn't have to be mind independent. Yeah, that's why I like the idea of of being an, a naturalist, but not a physicalist or not a materialist, right? In other words, there's the exception. Look, the natural world is the only thing there is. Yes, but the natural world gives rise to people. That's right. And exactly. people create worlds, we call them social realities. Exactly. Clearly exist. They're not unnatural, but they're Still. not material in the sense that uh, they're not describable in the language of material science, right? So I don't know if we mentioned this before. We may, we may have. Um, but this goes very nicely with a concept that was introduced a few years ago by Lee Smolin, who interestingly is a physicist. Right. Um, so Smolin is interested in, in um, fundamental physics. He's, he's uh, a critic of string theory. Uh, he, he thinks that uh, contra current understanding in general relativity, uh, time is actually a fundamental property of the universe, not an emergent one, and, you know, and so on and so forth. Regardless of that, he wrote this really interesting uh, book a few years ago where there's a chapter on mathematics. And, and he treats mathematics in an interesting way. He says, look, no, I'm not, I'm not a Platonist. I don't think mathematical objects are mind-independent. Also, however, they're not arbitrary inventions. 
That is, they are inventions of the human mind, but they're not arbitrary. They are things that the human mind thinks, uh, you know, uh, uh, puts, puts into existence, basically. His term is evocation, it pokes. It makes it, put, puts into existence, and then once it's, it exists, it actually has objective properties. And so he's, one of his examples is, uh, you know, the game of chess. Uh, so the game of chess, presumably, unless you're really hardcore Platonist, you don't think that the game of chess exists out there in a kind of a mind-independent way. We, we know the history of it, at least some of it. Right. It's a human creation, right? But once we agree as human beings on the rules of chess, then now there are actually mathematical uh, uh, theorems about chess that you can demonstrate and that they are objectively true and where you cannot possibly disagree with uh, unless you, you know, don't understand chess or you don't yeah, understand yeah, mathematics, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's a very good example, I think, so this notion of evoking abstract uh, notions that, yes, these notions do originate in the human mind, but once they originate, at least some of them actually have objective properties. Yeah, and yeah. in that kind of objective uh, sort of category, we may, we may count reasons for doing certain things and, for instance, prescri prescriptions in ethics. Yeah, yeah, at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, I mean, facts about chess are really within the, within the the sphere of what we would broadly call institutional facts, right? I mean, yeah, um, exactly. um, And and I and I do think that they are facts. And um, this this is sort of you know why I kind of um, want to resist any sort of bleeding of the things that exist in the space of reasons, <laughs> um, right. um, any bleeding of it into uh, things that exist in the space of causes, let's call it, right? Um, yeah. Because because I, I I worry that that's to um, is very likely to result in category errors. Um, um, but let's uh, talk about causes then. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because so so here's here's the thing. I mean, philosophers tend to throw around this this thing about oh it's it's causality. Oh, it's you know we need to reduce reasons to causes. But what the hell are causes to begin with? As you know, it's a fraught history. In, in philosophy about the concept of causality, beginning, of course, with David Hume, who didn't think that there is such a thing as causality. But, you know, he thought that causality is essentially a human construct, that all you have out there is one thing happens and then another thing Yeah, does. there's this constant conjunction, and then everything else is a result of human expectation. Right. <laughs> right. Now, I looked at the literature on causality recently. There's a really wonderful um, um, article in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy about causality. And I've Again, to my surprise, because I didn't think I was going that way when I started looking at this thing, I actually think at this point that I'm a pluralist about causes. Well, you have to be because you can't think that causes in biology are the same as causes in physics because causes in biology are purposeful, right? I mean, well, dynamic, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, so the so the thing is, there are several different accounts of causality. And some of these accounts don't even take into due consideration all of physics or, for, let me give you the, the, obvious, the obvious example. So one of the most popular accounts of causality is that causes are uh, the result of uh, interactions that leave physical quantities unaltered. A transfer of energy or, or things like that, right? So that when I, when we say that the accident was caused by, you know, the car accident was caused by another car getting into the wrong lane, what we're talking about here is a transfer of, of kinetic energy uh, that, that, you know, so it, a transfer of energy, the energy is not lost, it just, it just transformed. 
Great. Um, but I can also meaningfully say that the reason my plant died is because I didn't water it. These are the cause for the death of my plant. This is perfectly meaningful, right? We understand what we're talking about, but that's a very obvious example that actually concerns the biological world where I think that there's, nothing, there's no transfer of, of invariant uh, anything there. In fact, the, the, the plant died because I didn't water it. There's no water coming in. So there is no, it cannot be that kind of, 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 um, of uh, effects or results are not the result of a cause understood in, in, the, in the first sense, in the sense of a transfer of invaluable causal, uh, you know, physical quantities. So even if you stay outside, even outside of the human world, you're already running into trouble. You already have to be a pluralist about this sort of stuff. Is there not, though, don't you think, though, that, I mean, at least sort of materialist philosophers, I, don't want, I, I can't speak about scientists, but materialist philosophers would subsume both of those examples that you gave under a more general rubric of uh, an antecedent event that's sufficient for a subsequent event supporting certain counterfactual, uh, certain counter, supporting certain counterfactuals, right? In that yeah. case, th th they would both count as causes under that umbrella of a cause, but what I'm going to argue is that reasons and actions don't relate in that way. They don't relate as even even under the umbrella of antecedent events sub, sufficient for subsequent events under certain counterfactuals. That's right. Um, um, That's, so I think you're right, but, yeah. and, but and I mean we don't want to go too far into the discussion of causality. What do you think of that philosophical materialist conception of causes as basically sufficient conditions plus counterfactuals? Right. Right, but even that, but even that account, if you again, if if you if you actually look at the literature on causality, that one also has objections and runs in, into trouble. For one thing, because it's it's often very difficult, if not impossible, to actually cash it out, uh, because there are there are things like you know the same exact uh, effect can be uh, in fact caused by a number of different pathways uh, that may or may not occur, and you may or may not have a, a sufficient epistemic access to them. It's just, it, it gets really complicated. Yeah, 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 yeah. You have to have like sort of keteris paribus clauses to sort of, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Uh, those ceteris paribus clauses are very convenient, but they really uh, hide a lot of ignorance of, of what that's actually going on there. Yeah. Um, um, and also, again, you know, you, you, there, is, there seems to be intuitively an important difference between a cause understood as a physical interaction between things and a cause understood as the lack of action uh, or, or the lack of a particular, uh, you know, con condition. And then, and then, of course, you're right that when you come to, reason, to, to human reasons and motivations, that the whole account just falls apart. Yeah. So yeah. I think I come to, to believe that causality itself has to be a pluralist concept. Again, desert. I'm going for a desert here. I don't want to multiply, you know, concepts of causality indefinitely just because, you know, out of convenience. I do think that there, there may be a, a small number of accounts, but I am at this point pretty much convinced pluralist about it. Now, the question then I think you would raise is, well, should we count reasons as a human reasons as a particular type of cause or not? Um, I can see it both ways. I mean, you know, if I if if I say like like you know I, I just got up and went to my refrigerator and got a beer, why did I do that? I can say, well, the reason for that is because I was thirsty and I knew that there was beer in, in the refrigerator. But you could also say, so the cause that you know what what brought you to, up from your chair and to the refrigerator is the fact that you were thirsty and you are aware of it, 
and, and you were aware of certain information, such as the existence of beer inside the refrigerator. Could you talk of it uh, in terms of causality? I suppose you could, but as, so long as we understand that that kind of causality has to be subscriptive. It's not the same kind of causality that a biologist would talk about, and it's not the same kind of causality that a physicist will be talking about. It's not the kind of causality that, uh, that gives us a good description of the car accident, for instance, or, or, or of interactions between particles. It's, completely, it's a completely different thing. For one, re for one uh, reason, because I could overwrite myself, and I, I could think about, oh, I'm thirsty. Oh, I know that there is beer in the refrigerator, so I'm about to get up and go for it. And then I think, but, you know, beer is really not good for me. Perhaps I should keep my thirst for now or just get out to the store and get some water because it's better for me. I mean, all of this is reasoning that I can hardly imagine being meaningfully reduced to a, a naturalistic interpretation. It's sorry, natural science, not naturalistic. It's, it's all naturalistic as we're yeah, 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 yeah. A natural science interpretation of it. Again, the natural science seems to underestimate to underdetermine what's going on here. Sure, thirst is a biological process, for sure. It's a biological, you know, thing, urge. But I can, uh, I can act on a number of different ways on it, uh, and I can think ahead about which way I want to act, and, and that action might depend on a bunch of things that wouldn't make any sense in the description of a similar, of a similar situation in an animal. If I ask you, oh, why did the gazelle went to, you know, go to the, to the pond, uh, and you say, well, because it was thirsty and knew that there was a pond there, that's it. End of story. You don't really need anything else. Yeah. But in terms, you know, but in terms of human beings, well, why did I pick that particular brand of beer? Or why did I decide that instead I want water? Well, because I have all sorts of notions about what's healthy for me, or I have, you know, I'm responding to advertisements. All, the, all of that stuff has really no place into a biological explanation. It's all, it, it all has to do with, with reasons. Yeah. The, the case of the gazelle is interesting because it sort of highlights the, 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 the point at which uh, I don't know whether we, you and I come apart or not. You know, I, I'm going to want to be inclined to say that that way of describing the gazelle um, is to describe the gazelle as if it was a person. Now, the gazelle might be a person. And that it may have reasons for acting and it may represent certain states of affairs in certain ways, which I, in my view, is essential to the idea of acting for reasons, which I'll, I'll mention in a minute. Um, but if it doesn't, then it's sim simply engaged in motor movements that will have an entirely causal, uh, in the scientific sense, causal uh, uh, explanation. Oh, I agree. In other I words, agree. I, I, in other words, the question for me, the key question with, with respect to when we're talking about reasons and actions is what is my interest, right? And I would argue that when we give reasons for actions, our main interest is to render the actions intelligible from the actor's point of view. Correct. Right, because... Gazelle does not. Yeah, which, the, which I don't think the gazelle does, but I guess you could make, you could argue about that, right? It really depends, and that we simply don't know, right? We simply don't know at what level of development creatures become capable of actual representation, right? I mean, I don't, and I don't know. Do we actually have any sense of? Do we have a demarcation at all? I don't. I don't think we do. If I had to guess, I would put the demarcation somewhere in the. It, it's not a line. It's going to be a sort of a territory, um, and I would put it somewhere into the vicinities of. You got to have a complex brain uh, that allows you to for, for this, this kind of reflection on your own motivations, and so conservatively. I would probably limit that to the great apes. The great apes, and not, so so you would not ascribe this to dolphins and whales and 
Well, that's a different category of mammals. Yes, I might, I might include uh, large cetaceans for the same reason, because they have large brains, complex behaviors. It's, about the, it's about the brain structure, complexity. Right. 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 And we know this, frankly, even by uh, studying the human brain. I mean, we know that, that if the human brain is, is damaged, you know, certain areas of the human brain is damaged, you're not capable of acting uh, by reason anymore. You become a vegetable. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's, it, it, it does, it does uh, you know, the ability to make decisions, reflect, and so on and so forth, and, and repre represent things to ourselves does require certain brain circuitry. Yeah. And so it would be foolish to say that, well, human beings are the only ones that have that, that circuitry. We may or we may not. But yeah. the, the, I don't think that that objection is even an objection. It doesn't, uh, we don't need to, to draw a demarcation line to know that there is one somewhere. Yeah. As I said, you can go as far as insects or plants. They certainly don't have motivations of representation. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the story. That's all you need. Where, you know, it, it, the question of whether it is only human beings that have it or some other animals, well, it's an interesting question, but it doesn't really add anything to the discussion I think that we're having. Yeah. Which is, we have representations, we have things about things, about, about certain other things, you know, we think about other things. And... That's where, again, I'm going to bring up Alex Rosenberg, who, on the other hand, is one of the several philosophers who denies that there is such a thing as a badness. Right? Yeah, yeah. He says that's an illusion. Yeah. Um, and now, when I hear that kind of thing, I am with John C. Arl, who famously said that that kind of response is amounts to denying the data. Right? So, of course, we have, I have things, thoughts about something. Right now, I'm thinking about Alex Rosenberg and his book, uh, that denies that there is a badness. Obviously, I'm thinking about something, and, and my thoughts are referring to, some, to something. So the question is, how does that work? That's a reasonable question, but not, But the answer to that question cannot possibly be, well, that's an illusion. Right. There, isn't a, there's no, there are no reasons, right? I mean, yeah. um, 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 and, and, and presumably, uh, Alex Rosenberg, like everybody else, gives reasons for the things he does and wants to know the reasons why other people do things. I would think um, so, yeah. Um, 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 so, so let me just, let's just for a second talk about reasons and causes um, specifically, and then I want to just get to the last thing, which is what impact, if any, does this have on the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the wonderful free will problem? Oh, yeah. Um, 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 so just um, from my essay, what I just, the way I characterized a reason, I said what makes X a reason for doing something is that X is represented as a means to some other thing, Y that is represented as an end. Doing yeah. things for reasons then is always teleological. Yeah. That the explanations I give in terms of reasons are always going to be teleological in nature. If I assault someone, it's because I represent him as a menace. If I aid someone, it's because I represent him as deserving of assistance. I do both because I represent the relevant states of affairs where menaces are removed and thus deserve those deserving assistance aided as goods. Yes. Um, and I don't think you have, and this is, this is why I sort of pushed a little bit on the involuntary voluntary, but I, I think that we don't really disagree. We're just slicing things up differently that winds up being ultimately equivalent. Um, I don't think you have actions without reasons. In your parlance, I don't think you have voluntary actions without reasons. Yes, that's right. I think that reasons don't primarily function to predict. Um, and maybe this is, in a sense, talking, getting to your point about the biological intermediary between physical causality and teleological causality. I think the primary purpose of reasons is to render behavior intelligible. 
Yeah. And by rendering them intelligible at the ground level, that means understanding them from the point of view of the actor. Right. Understanding them by way of his representations. Yeah. More generally, though, the purpose is to fit his behavior into a narrational picture. Yeah, that's right. right. Uh, I think that's correct. Now, that may lead to predictions. I mean, you know, the, the famous notion of a theory of mind, which is another one of those things that Rosenberg denies actually exists. Um, you know, a theory of mind, presumably, you know, it, meaning our capacity, I'm not, I don't mean the, the, the philosophy of mind version of it necessarily. I just mean the general idea that, if, that, that we evolve the capacity to understand and potentially predict yeah. other people's behaviors, right? That's clearly adaptive. That's we want to do that. If, if if our behavior, if the behavior of people around us were completely unpredictable, we would be living really hellish kind of lives, right? If I can't tell whether my partner is going to come back home with, you know, uh, flowers for me or a knife and she wants to kill me, you know, hey, uh, it would be really difficult to 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 yeah. to, to, to live a life, right? So in a sense, it is about prediction. But that prediction, I think, is instantiated, uh, you know, it's made possible by the fact that, as you said, reasons are, in fact, narratives. They make sense both for us and for the agents, for other, for other agents. Yeah. And I think it's really honestly ridiculous to deny that there is such a thing. Uh, obviously, we have reasons of that sort, and they are, teleo- they are inherently teleological. Right? Yeah, no, I think so. And, and I think that... Um you know, in thinking about this, actions have to be, in a sense, ontologically plural in nature because the very same action can be manifested in almost indefinitely many physical events, right? So yeah. I can an act of charity can consist of giving someone money. It consists of cooking someone a meal. It can consist of... Uh, just being a, being kind to someone. It can consist of so, an, an assault, can consist of punching someone, stabbing someone, poisoning them. Right? In other words... So, there's a, there's a book that I read recently, I'm, I reviewed on my blog, called uh, The Character Gap, which is about character um, and how to improve, you know, the, the, where, to go from where we actually are in terms of our character to where we might want to be. And one of the points that the author makes is that even an act of charity, one of the examples is an act of charity. It's like, well... You can have exact same act, like showing up uh, at, the, at, the, at the kitchen for, for the homeless during Thanksgiving, right? For completely different reasons. Yeah. You could do it because you're genuinely concerned about the homeless. You could do it because you want to show off with your friends. You could do it because you want to add it to your resume because you're looking for a job where that will make you look good. Um, and in fact, you can do it for a combination of those things. Those are not even mutually, mutually exclusive. It's exact same action. The action from a biological perspective is identical. Right. You would think that, that just that would be enough to convince people that you need pluralism because when the same exact action can be described meaningfully in you know, very different ways in terms of motivations, then that means that the biology of the action isn't going to tell you the whole story. Yeah. Biology is going to tell you, oh, yeah, this guy's got up and went to this thing and it, it did this by moving certain muscles and, and those movements of muscles were due to certain impulses in his brain. Yeah, yes. Yeah. But the exact same sequence of biological events can be the result of very different human motivations. That means human motivation is irreducible. You yeah. can't get it out of the picture. Now, you want to use both the biological and the, the, the motivational aspects to understand, to get the full picture. That's the famous stereoscopic vision that 
that Celis was talking about. But I would, I would uh, actually suggest that in these particular cases, the more relevant thing is the, is the motivational part. It's the manifest image, yeah. right? For most of human behavior, uh, the most important part is the, is, is the manifest image. The scientific image provides the background. There is no human behavior will ever uh, go against the laws of physics. No human behavior will ever be uh, inexplicable in biological terms. That's right. Because we are physical, biological organisms. And anybody, and that, by the way, is what precludes uh, the worry that you raised earlier, which is that if you if you accept the manifest image as, as a valid thing in and of itself, then you must you must go supernatural, mind independent, all that sort. No, you don't, because if you keep in mind the stereoscopic image, since we are physical and biological systems, nothing we can do, we're going to do, is ever going to violate either the laws of physics or the, 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 the principles of biology. But those laws and those principles tell you very little about why I'm going to the homeless kitchen uh, this morning. It just doesn't tell you enough. And, there, and if it doesn't, then in terms of explanations, now, you may, you know, you may want to talk about causes or not. I would prefer to talk about reasons. I think you're right there. Uh, you, 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 you could stretch the definition of, co- co- of causes to include reasons. Uh, so long as you subscript them and you make clear that you're not talking about the same kind of reason, of, of, sorry, of causes that the natural sciences are talking, are talking about. Yeah, I think if you're a causal pluralist, as you tend to be, you can... Uh, in a sense, do this the same way that you're inclined to do the ontology, and that is have these spectra um, um, with a sort of identifiable transition points, but which are not precise, as opposed to the way I like to do it, which is, and maybe this has to do with some sort of sort of uh, tidiness fetish on my part, but um, <laughs> but I kind of like the idea of being able to say, look, you know, the biology tells us everything about the motor movements. It tells us nothing about the actions, really, right? The actions are really only illuminated when we turn to the reasons, and that's because the actions, when we're talking about it at that level of description, we're not really talking about them as motor movements. We're talking them about as motor movements under certain representations, right? Um, and that's that's what fits them into the narrational level of description. Yeah, um, absolutely. Let me come up with just one more example before yeah, we go. Sure. And that's and again one of my my standard objections to the sort of uh, uh, Churchland, uh, Rosenberg, and so on and so forth thing. You, you, you're familiar with the standard example of you know the chair that I'm sitting on right now. It's an illusion because it's really just a bunch of quirks. You know, they are governed by the laws of physics. It's mostly empty space. Right, it's mostly empty space, and yet somehow I don't fall through it. Right <laughs> now, that to me seems like a really misguided way of thinking about it. Because it, the, the notion is that there is one fundamental description that is the correct description, as opposed to, again, a pluralism of descriptions. Yes, of course, at the subatomic level, the, 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 chair, the chair doesn't exist. It's a bunch of quirks and must mostly empty space. Absolutely. But that level of description is irrelevant. Pretty You're much. not engaging with it at that level of description. No, it's entirely irrelevant. It doesn't help me to figure out how to, to, to sit on a chair. It does not help me to figure out which chair is more comfortable. It does not help me to figure out which chair should I buy at the store because I need one. And it certainly tells me nothing about the immense variety of chairs that you want to come up with um, and, and, you know, and that you can buy at a store if you can afford them. So because that description doesn't tell you anything about 
all these other things, that to me seems to be an obvious indication that that description is incomplete. Yeah. Yeah. It cannot be the more fun. It may be fundamental, more fundamental ontological. Yes, meaning that if you're going to go down to the bottom line of bottom of things, yes, that's the bottom. But the bottom one doesn't mean the most relevant. Yeah. And I think that's the mistake. That yeah, it's interesting. You can you you can replicate this problem about ontology purely within the realm of material objects, right? Um, you don't even have to go to biology to problematize this. That's you just right. have to talk about the level of description of the, the sort of macro versus the micro, right? Um, right. Um, to replicate. It's both true that the chair is a physical object with certain very clear physical characteristics at one level of description, and it is also true at a lower level of description that it is bunch, you know, mostly empty space. It's both true that it's solid, even solid as hell, as evinced if I break it over your head. And it's also true of it that it's empty space, right? And um, that's because you're op- you're, those terms are being used within different, with different grammars, as Wittgenstein would call it. And that's the same, I think, with the problem that you raise with causality and reasons, right? Yeah. So if, you, if you say, if you're using the word, uh, if, if you're saying that reasons are causes, and you're using the vocabulary of the natural sciences, I think you're mistaken. But if you say reasons are causes, and by that I mean they are one of a number of types of causes, and they're specifically the kind of causes that, that apply to teleological systems such as human beings, fine, then I don't have a problem. I call them causes. Yeah. I prefer to call them reasons. Yeah. Because it's more intuitive. Right? Yeah. But yeah, if you want to consider that a kind of cause, okay. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk to you lastly about <laughs> About the free will problem. So in my view, I'm neither a determinist nor a libertarian nor a compatibilist because I think that the, pro- the, the free will problem is ill-formed, right? Yeah. Basically, the problem of determinism arises within the sphere of physical causality, right? Which means yeah. it arises at the level of human motor movement. But I don't think it applies to human action, right? In other words, because actions are not merely motor movements and because reasons are not merely physical causes, I don't see how the deterministic properties of mechanistic causation have right. any effect whatsoever on whether I can do things for various reasons or not, right? And so yeah. I guess I, my argument is that the, that the free will problem doesn't arise if you, unless you incorrectly import notions of causality from the scientific image into uh, the space of reasons uh, that, 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 that work in the manifest image. Now, do you disagree with that? I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure. Some, there's something that makes me uncomfortable about that particular description, but you may be right. So let, let's think this thing through. Um, I think of human reasons as the same uh, as, so the, the, sorry, the relationship between human reasons and sort of uh, physical causes as the same relation that holds between describing it ch- or a similar relation that, that holds in describing the chair as a physical object as opposed to a bunch of empty space. Meaning that those are two different levels of description. Um, and here's one of, here I think is the crucial question in terms of free will. Do you think, even with your description, do you think that um, given the exact same circumstances, identical, 
in terms of not just physical circumstances, but also your understanding of the world, your your motive, your your motives for acting one way or the other, uh, what you think about how the world works, all of that stuff, all of the, so 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 the same exact situation, not just in terms of physical aspects of your brain and and environment, but also in terms of your reasons and motivations. That under identical circumstances, you would be in fact be, be making the same choice. You'll be acting the same way. If you stipulate, if you stipulate, yeah, that all the reasons, yeah, and their implications, yeah, remain the same, then the answer is yes. But I don't see that. That's not what they mean by determinism, though. I thought that what they mean by determinism is this idea that causality, that physical causality, ultimately is lo- is is bound by laws. Right. So, so here's what I try to do, and this may not work at all. Um, because I'm literally thinking on my butt. And my butt is on a chair who does not feel empty at all. You haven't fallen through it yet. <laughs> yeah, <I'm fine. laughs> so, my reason. so the reason I asked you the question that why, so I would agree with you that given that stipulation, yes, I would, obviously I would do the same thing. Um, that to me excludes any kind of libertarian free will. Uh, any, any kind of, oh, free will is this thing floating out there uh, in, in a vacuum. But it's not the deterministic physicalist account because what it is, it's put together by a combination of two things, right? It, I stipulated that the physical aspects are exactly the same. I also stipulated that your reasons are exactly the same, right? So since we have, we've agreed to be pluralist about causality, basically what I said, what I just stipulated is that the physical, the natural science causes are the same and the reason philological causes are the same. And if that's the case, then you're going to come up with the same with the same answer. Um, in that sense, I think it's misleading to even talk about free will, right? I don't I don't like the term because the question you know it begs the question you know what do you mean by free? Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think there is any free will, and I don't think there's a problem. I think there is agency, and right. all that agency consists of is the fact that we can do things for reasons, right? That we can do things for reasons of our own and that we can do, diff- you know, and that we can, those reasons can change. We can, we can, we can decide to do something for one reason or decide to do something for another reason. And, and, and I guess what I just don't see is how the deterministic nature of physical causality impinges upon that. And that's because I don't think at that level of description, we're talking within the space a physical yeah. causality. We're talking in this in really a logical space, not a causal space. Right. So I think that the physical causality constrains our choices. It's right. What it is possible to what reasons it's even possible to have are going exactly. to be somewhat constrained. That's it. But I didn't think that that's what people mean by determinism. I thought that they mean that well because billiard balls have to hit each other and move. That ultimately, you know, those same laws govern all of our. Right. Uh, that's right. And that's a that's a fundamental distinction, I think, between us at at this point. I can say safely, and the the, the Churchland and Rosenbergs of the world, uh, meaning that that we think that actually, given the same exact you know physical environment and biological stuff, etc., we can we can in fact have different reasons uh, at different times uh, and and think through things in different in different in different ways. Um, does that amount to free will? No, I think that that, again, that's, I think, a misleading way of looking at it because yeah. as soon as you introduce the word free, then you say, well, free from what? 
it, it implies something much stronger than what seems to me is actually the case and is really right. actually meant. I don't think I don't think that when people say that they did something for a reason and and, and then maybe they changed their mind and did, did something else for a different reason that what they mean is that in some sense they're completely totally unconstrained by any sort of considerations or conditions, right? That's not what anybody means when they say I don't think so. They act that's, right? I mean, <laughs> that's right. That's why I think that the most productive way to get out of the, the free will debate is to drop the word free will, term free will, and use what incidentally, not because I want to always gonna want to go back to the Stoics, but that's what the, the, the word that the Stoics use, at, and it is the same word that modern psychologists use, volition. Yeah. The ancient yeah. word was, the Greek word was proheresis, but it translates as volition. So the yeah. ability to make decisions. Yeah. So can I make different decisions given different circumstances and given different reasons? Yeah. Hell yes. Yeah. Of course I can. Right. Um, right. And and my decisions, my volition is the result, of course, of biological and physical constraints, but also my reasons. Yeah. My reasons are part of the naturalistic understanding of the world, and you do need the manifest image to be looked at and you know, to be part of this stereoscopic vision, because otherwise you're not going to understand. Uh, human volition. Because to say that what I'm doing when I decide to pick up a beer and this particular kind of beer as opposed to another one and so on and so forth is the same thing the billiard board, board, balls are doing uh, on a beer table. It's insane. Yeah. It, 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 it really denies, again, to go with John Searle, it denies the facts. It denies yeah. the phenomenon. Yeah. It like says, oh, that thing that, that you think you, you need to explain doesn't actually exist. Of course it does. It's a different level of description, and it requires a pluralism of causes. Some of these causes have to have have to be human reasons. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is really interesting, and I, 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 I it's fascinating to me that I mean, the the way that we 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 wind up not really disagreeing very much, but I, it fascinates me the way the different ways that we frame. And and that's because I think it's inevitably it's because of your science background and my lack of one, right? I mean, I'm coming purely out of philosophy, and um um and I I find it really really useful to sort of get this other way of of really coming to the same view, but drawing lines in different places. And um, I guess one of the things just leaving off as we as we close off, um. I actually think something you said earlier is going to wind up mattering a lot, and that is how teleology comes out of teleonomy. Mm, um, yeah. And I'm wondering, just speculating, is this ultimately going to be a biological story or a philosophical one? In other words, is this going to be a story that we're only going to be able to tell in reverse? In other words, from the, from the teleological standpoint, or are we ever going to have a biological account that's going to explain why out of teleonomic systems yeah. get I don't narr- know. narrational beings, beings that occupy narrational spaces, right? I don't know, but I can tell you one thing. I'm about to, I'm, I've been thinking about running on a, a blog post about this problem by presenting it as analogous to a completely different problem that nobody would have a, that would have raised the same kind of objections to. So you just said, we don't, we don't know what, how the transition between teleonomy and teleology happened. And that, of course, has kept not only a lot of biologists busy, but a lot of philosophers in mind, because that, you know, how is it possible that a chunk of 
that That's are, right. uh, you know, produces thoughts about something and, and so on and so forth. Well, to me, as a biologist, that's exactly the same problem. Well, it's a very analogous problem to the question of the origin of life, which, if you think about it, in terms of the terminology we just used, is the question of how do we go from a non-teleonomic system to, to teleonomy, from, from pure yeah. materiality to teleonomy. And the answer is nobody knows. There's plenty of uh, speculations out there. There's lots of, of uh, you know, uh, ideas about the origin of life. But in fact, nobody knows. And I think nobody knows simply because the, the historical traces are not good enough. We don't have enough information. We may never know why that, how that actually happened. Um, similarly, I think that the question of the transition between teleonomy and teleology, we may never know because, again, the historical traces are, are, are not there. There is no historical trace of the early stages of human development, of human, uh, human language, and human thinking. There is nothing like that. Right? So we may never know. Um, but if how, you, how, how little do we know about the actual natural origin of language? Well, uh, we know when we evolved uh, anatomical structures that, that make language possible, like a voice box, for instance. And we know that that happened way before the actual, any, any actual presence of, uh, your hint of a presence of language. Um, but if you read a book by uh, my colleague Kevin Lalland, who is a, a biologist, it's about exactly about this. It's about the early stages of, of um, uh, cultural evolution, and the title of the book is Darwin's Un Unfinished Symphony. Ooh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That got a lot of attention, that book. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's about the transition between, in, in terminology that we'll be using now, between teleonomy and teleology, right? And he lists nine different hypotheses for the origin of Language. Oh, so it's very much in dispute. This is something that's an active area of research right now. And by the way, his favorite hypothesis, which you know makes me and, and should make you feel good about, it, but I think is you know he thinks that his hypothesis is much better than the other ones. But I think it's to be honest, it's just one of you know a number. But his hypothesis is that language evolved so that we could teach each other. That a major. Uh, because because being able to teach each other, especially to teach strangers within the, within a group of a, a human group, uh, is is of immense um, uh, sort of adaptive uh, significance. Because all of a sudden it means that you can build on the inventions of other people. So that's in his in, in Kevin's mind, the that thing that that, that the, the language which which uh, evolved out of the necessity to teach is what made the leap, what made human beings make the leap, uh, and, and what differentiates our cultural evolution from everybody else's cultural evolution. There are aspects of cultural evolution in other organisms. There are, you know, chimpanzees that develop tools and they imitate each other, and they, but they never build on that. They stay there. They stay stuck there. It's simple inventions. They don't become iterative. The only way to, for an invention to be, become iterative is through language because you have to... That's be able very much like a bootstrapping... Correct. Process. So, I like that Is it really the, the way it happened? I, no, I don't know. And, you know, nobody knows. Uh, but I like that hypothesis because basically it means that we're fundamentally teachers. That, what, that, that, that a very, very important aspect, you know, what made the humanity make the leap between teleonomy and teleology is, is teaching. Yeah. And, teacher. that's, and that's what creates the, the, the tremendous esc uh, uh, acceleration. Of development, right? I mean, once you have the transmission of traits, not just biologically, right. but within a generation, right, through language, now 
the, the ta- capacity for development is just astonishing, right? I mean, it just... And it, right. It becomes iterative, and this iter- iterative aspect of cultural evolution is made possible by the fact that language itself is iterative. Yeah, yeah. And you know, now, language is not just communication. It's more, much more complicated than that. H.G. Wells has a fascinating book that was written um, early in his career called The Conquest of Time, and then he wrote one at the end of his career called Mine at the Ed- Edge of Its Tether, which was much more pessimistic. But in the first one, Conquest of Time, he actually says that once you have cultural transmission, um, that human beings really are no longer natural in a certain sense, and they are they become artifactual, right? Um, um, and and I and I think that's a sort of a fascinating. I mean, that's interesting, but I do think again that this applies also to the origin of life. Once you have living organisms, however you want to define them or think of them or however they come out. Now you have a whole different class of physical systems. Are they physical systems? Of course they are. But they're a completely different class. Now they can evolve by natural selection. There's teleonomy in the universe, which wasn't there before. And how, the last thing, what is the relative progress with the relation to these? So you told me what the, where we stand with regard to the jump from teleonomy to teleology, and that is we, have, we don't know. There's at least nine accounts, if not more. How do we stand on... How the hell you get organic material out of inorganic material? How do we st- how do we stand there? Worse, we have even probably even worse. We have dozens of hypotheses about the origin of life. Now some of them are more reasonable than others, but again, the facts on the ground dramatically underdetermine, unfortunately, our theories. So you know, the primordial soup, the the primordial. Yeah. Pizza, the, was it RNA first or, or proteins first? All of that stuff is just it's out there. And yes, you will find very strong advocates of each one of these views. But in my mind, at least, there's, there's, we don't know. And there may be no way to know. Uh, incidentally, there's another analogy there. And actually, now that I think of it, if we have a couple more minutes. Yeah, sure. Which is, you know, a lot of people think that we might be able to solve the problem of the origin of life once we can replicate that origin under artificial conditions. Right, And that's analogous, in a sense, to the notion to why so many people in philosophy of mind are interested in artificial intelligence, right? The strong AI uh, uh, program came out of that, of that particular notion. That, well, if we want to understand human, human, human consciousness, maybe we should just replicate it yeah. in a machine. That, that way we'll figure it out, right? You and I did a dialogue on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the thing is, I don't think it's going to work because... Uh, Let's say that we are going to be successful one of these days. I doubt it, but we're going to be successful one of these days to actually originate life, have origin of life in a laboratory setting from scratch, not not from pre-existing stuff. Inorganic matter. Inorganic matter, right? So we succeed. Well, what we have shown is that there is at least one path by which you can get from inorganic to organic. But we knew that already because... That we doesn't know. mean that's how we got there, right? <laughs> it doesn't mean that human, that life on planet Earth got there that way, right? It, it just, it just shows there is one way to do it. It just, it doesn't show that that is the way it actually did happen on this planet. Similarly, I think with artificial intelligence, it may be possible to have, to evolve, you know, computer machine, machinery, you know, robots or whatever it is that actually have true consciousness, not just intelligence, but consciousness, you know, first person, uh, you know, uh, experiences and things like that. It's possible. What, what do I know? But that doesn't necessarily tell us how we work because that, that, that's one way, presumably, of a number in which we, that process, that transition can actually happen. And so, so you're make, this is almost a philosophy of science argument you're making. You're essentially saying, look, 
the notion that reverse engineering yields a certain kind of understanding is probably wrong, right? Right. That's right. Now, don't get me wrong. If we do get artificial intelligence or artificial life, that would be great. That would be, you know, incredibly interesting from a scientific perspective. Uh, and it actually would have philosophical implications yeah. uh, as well. But is it going to tell us that that's the way it happened on planet Earth? No. Yeah. No. Historical traces can tell us that, and we don't have a hell of a lot of those. Well, Massimo, uh, we did it. <laughs> I was a little, I was a little scared of this one, honestly, because it it's very, it's not easy. Um, um, and uh, I thank you very much for uh, helping me through it. And, uh, <laughs> and um, what you want to give us a little news update on what's going, what you've been doing? What you got? Any uh, big things coming up? Any projects? Anything happening in the Stoic front uh, that you yeah. want to tell the audience about? Yeah, two things, I guess. The, the, uh, well, maybe three. The, um, the second edition of Nonsense on Stilts, How to Tell Science from Bunk, it's just out. Uh, this is one of my favorite books that I, that I wrote. Uh, it's about science, pseudoscience, and everything in between. Uh, it was published originally in 2010, and then the University of Chicago Press asked me to do a new edition. It just came out, like, literally a few days ago. Um, and uh, I, I'm pretty pleased with it. There are a number of new chapters in it, and everything else has been updated. So that's the thing that just happened. In terms of things happening, um, I have a book of 52 stoic exercises, a very, very practical kind of workbook, almost written really like a kind of behavioral therapy book, co-authored by, with uh, my friend Greg Lopez. It's going to come out uh, by The Experiment, which is a, a publishing house in New York. Uh, and it will be out in May, and I think it's going to be really interesting because for people who want sort of a very practical understanding of, of uh, philosophy in general, but in stoic philosophy in particular. And then, of course, there's the thing that we're working on. Uh, with I didn't Sky. know whether that's allowed to be publicly uh, talked about. Yeah, I think we, I think we should. So I, this, this, is a, a, this is an anthology uh, where, where the, the co-editors together with Sky Cleary uh, about different ways of, of practicing a philosophy of life. So each author takes on a different philosophy or religion uh, from Stoicism to, to Buddhism to Taoism to Christianity and so on and so forth. And that one, uh, we don't know yet when it's going to come out because we're still in the editing process, uh, but it's going to be published by, by Vintage, uh, which is a very good publishing house. So I'm looking forward to that one um, sometime next year. Well, you're a busy man. <laughs> um, the Stoic book, now you did, and how to be a Stoic, there is a section on exercises, right? Yes. So this is a book completely consisting of exercises. Correct. Uh, the, how to be a Stoic has an, uh, a section of 12 exercises to just get people sort of, their people's feet wet into that, into that, you know, if you want, after all, it is a practical philosophy. So if you just understand the theory, but you don't put it into practice, then it's not, it's not very useful. In fact, it's very much unstoic. Yeah. Uh, stoic themselves, Peter Seneca kept saying, you know, if you don't practice this stuff, then you're wasting your time. But with Greg, we thought that a, a comprehensive book of 52 exercises, the notion is that if you want to, you can do one per week for an entire year. You don't have to. There is, we, we suggest for ways to pick and choose a subset of exercises one month. But um, it's written, uh, I think, in an interesting way. Uh, it, it reads like the kind of behavioral therapy workbook. So you, there literally are spaces for, for readers to write down their notion, their, their, their reactions to pictures. Oh, it's an, actual, it's an actual workbook. People are expected to write in it. That's right, exactly. Ah, yeah. okay. 
I expected to write in it, to use it as a diary, to use it for, for navigating certain circumstances. And it's also organized theoretically as the three famous disciplines of Epictetus. Epictetus said that, uh, that there are three aspects to Stoic training. One has to do with uh, modifying your desires and aversion. So you should train yourself to desire certain things and, and to have aversion to other things. Uh, one has to do with action, the way in which you deal with other people. Uh, in, you know, in society. And, and then the other, the third one is to do with um, uh, assent, which means judgment. You know, how do you prove your judgment uh, about things? And so the book is itself divided into three, three sections, uh, each section characterized by a certain number of exercises. And it's kind of like a progression. In a sense, we wrote it uh, imagining that if, what, would, what would it be like if you walked into Epictetus school today yeah. and you had to actually do his curriculum? Uh, and, and in order to, to become a better person. So, Yeah. Well, that's terrific. Massimo, thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to doing it again with you soon. And uh, if I don't speak with you before the holidays, uh, hope, I hope your, your grading goes well, your finals go well, and that you have a happy holiday of whatever sort you're going to celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise to you, my friend. Thank you very much. All right. Take care, Massimo. Bye. Bye-bye. Before you go, a quick message from the Suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.